Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't remember what to say. And the flowers fade. The Lord stands forever. Scripture again, Corey. <laughs> it's a lot of grace here, but uh, we have our limits. I want to pray. If you don't have this yet, it's called Be Thou My Vision by Jonathan Gibson. It is a great kind of like supplementary work uh, for uh, your quiet times each day. It's, 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 it's 30, 30 or 31 different liturgies that you can use every single day, and they're just, they're really wonderful. But before we get started, um, this is the one I read this morning, and there's always a prayer for illumination before you go into the scriptures. That's, that's what this prayer is called, the prayer I pray before we, we, pre- we hear the preaching of word, is, is the prayer for illumination. So I want to pray this prayer uh, by a pastor who lived long ago named George Herbert, and this is the prayer for illumination. So let's pray. O make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. That is where we are, uh, we are at in our, our study of these Catholic epistles. And we'll be here for quite some time. So a goal of of the Christian life, or the goal of the Christian life, is not just to show people another option uh, or another reality amongst many, but to show them true reality in Christ Jesus. Because as a church, we believe that reality is found, found in Christ, is true reality. So it's, it's seeing yourself in the world around you as it is meant to be seen. And this is what we offer people. Not just a good life, but an abundant life that can only be found in giving our life over to Jesus. So in our text this morning, Peter tells his readers how to live lives that do this very thing. And not only, not only that, but to live lives like this in a hostile environment, in a culture that, as Jesus put it, hates them, simply because they are aligning their life with his. So after giving instruction that we've learned over the past several weeks about how Christians are to, to, to relate to the structures of society, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, and then how to conduct themselves in their own households, Peter now instructs his readers on what qualities should be evidenced between believers among themselves and believers in the wider community. Karen Jobes says this in her uh, amazing commentary on First Peter, She says, because the Christian community is to be an alternate society where believers should not have to face the same kinds of insult and hostility that comes from those outside the church. So Peter says that in order for the church to to really be a place of, of support and a place of refuge and a place where true reality is found, certain qualities must characterize 
its members. And that's what we have in these verses. So we'll look at, we'll look at three different uh, ways we can do that this morning in, in, in these verses that we had read for us this morning. One is the virtues that sustain a Christian community. Two are the values that mark a Christian community. And then three is the view that God has of the Christian community. So the virtues that sustain us, the values that mark us, and the view that God has of us. So when I say Christian community, just know that I mean the church in that. So the first is the virtues that sustain a Christian community. Look down at verse 8 with me. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So Peter uh, seems to be concluding this part of his letter uh, with the use of the word finally. In, In the Greek New Testament, this is translated as to sum up. So Peter is summing everything up for his readers here at this particular part of his letter. And this is helpful because it lets us know that these words that he is speaking about, or he is, he's about to speak in verses 8 through 12, have been laced throughout the words that he has written in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. So after spending time on specific groups that, that make up the church, so he talks to, he speaks directly to those who were slaves at this point in time. Uh, he speaks to wives and he speaks to husbands. Peter now turns his attention back to the corporate body. He turns his attention back to the entirety of the church when he says, to sum this up, all of you. So what does he tell his readers to do? Well, he uses five adjectives they need to have as a church. And in all of the terms that Peter uses in verse 8, are there, it's all familial language. It's all, it's all family language. So reminding his readers that because their, their new birth has been generated by God the Father, remember, if you are in Christ, you are born again. So your new birth has been generated by God the Father. This means that you are now to see each other, fellow believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as family. So this list of virtues is intended to, to reinforce the Christian's uh, cohesion, not, not, with, not with society at large, not with society necessarily outside of the church, but with the countercultural society of the church. This is Peter's intent. So I think as, as the church, we, we are quick to want to get involved with those things outside of the church, because that's what we believe that we're supposed to do, that we need to go out and, and, and do these certain things in the world. And I agree, those are important, and those are things that we should be doing. But we cannot let this be what we do first and foremost. We can't uh, do all of these things outside the church to the, neg- to the neglect of the souls within the church. And more often than not, than not, that happens within the church. Because a lot of time what happens on the out, inside of the church uh, affects what is happening on the outside. For example, as you experience the love of those within uh, the church, this church in particular, and I think we love pretty well, I'm a little biased, but I, I believe that to be true, you will then want to, in turn, others in your life, to experience this same sort of love. So then you will go out and share this with your neighbors, you will share this with your co-workers, you will share this with your family members and your friends. Having your mind renewed each week through worship and sitting under God's preached word, hopefully will begin to, to refine you, chipping away those rough edges over time reshaping your heart around the gospel, which will then change the type of husband or wife you are. It it, it will impact how you parent your children and will change the way you do business, the way you practice medicine, the way you teach students in the school system, the way you lead other soldiers at Fort Gordon. 
So he lists out five adjectives to set us in the right direction. So the first adjective he he speaks of is being having unity of the mind, which is just another way of saying having one mind amongst you. So unity is something that is very important to the early church. And this idea of unity is is a theme that is laced throughout the New Testament. Over and over again, unity is talked about. So Jesus' own words in John chapter 13 say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, and by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Unity. And this encompasses what Jesus' Jesus's words here encompass the entirety of the text here. Remember, Peter was uh, walking along with Jesus. He heard Jesus speak these words in the flesh. And so this is what is driving Peter's understanding of what it means to be the church. But then you also have Men like Paul in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Speaking to the church. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. First and second Corinthians, both letters are concerned with unity in the church. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, speaking about a particular pastoral kind of congregational situation that has come up, he, he says that, that he wants the church uh, to be unified for the, reason, for the reason being so that they would not be outwitted by Satan. So Paul says if we are not unified around the gospel, then that is Satan's opportunity to come in our midst and to outwit us, to, to trick us, to make us think things about people that aren't true and to say things to other people about those people that you're thinking about that aren't true. And then slowly, over time, more disunity is sowed, and eventually the church is split. So what does it mean to have unity of mind? Well, this particular Greek word that Peter uses here is only used by Peter, it's only used once, and it's only used by Peter here in 1 Peter, in the New Testament. So it's a word that communicates harmony. So to be harmonious is to be of like mind with others. So so I just want to say, what this does not mean is tolerance. He's not saying be tolerant of each other. So tolerance is the ability or willingness to tolerate something. So in particular, the existence of opinions or behaviors that one does not necessarily agree with. That's a technical definition for that. So our culture tells us to be tolerant, to say to people, you know, you do you. If that makes you happy, then I'm happy for you. Or if that's your reality, then I'll support you in that, even though that's not my reality. That's what the culture tells us. Be tolerant. And if you can't show tolerance, then you will be canceled. Now, on the other hand, to be harmonious means to to form a a pleasing or consistent whole. So an example of that would be uh, the decor is a harmonious blend of traditional and modern, meaning they, they work together well, even in their differences. So a marriage between a, a man and a woman is a harmonious union, a harmonious relationship. They are the same but different, remember? They work together well, even though they are different in a lot of ways. So Peter calls his readers together in their differences because the gospel calls us together in our differences. Remember Paul's words from Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying uh, is not saying those things don't exist anymore. What Paul is saying there is that there is a unifying factor among us in Christ Jesus that makes us all equal. It levels the playing field for us. 
And understanding this will allow you to share life together uh, with those who may look differently than you. To share life together with those who don't share the same political party as you do. Or opinions about various social ideas and, uh, and different uh, political kind of ideologies that are, that, are, that are spewed out into our culture. This is why I think there was so much turmoil during, um, during the times of COVID and, and lockdown that happened really amongst a lot of churches. And I really believe the cause for it, the root cause for it, was that they were not uni- unified around the gospel to begin with. And so they tried to unify themselves around uh, mask wearing versus no mask wearing. Uh, meet in person, don't meet in person. Uh, vaccinate or don't vaccinate. And immediately, and sadly, even though these are, we would say together, these are trite, unimportant things. But this kills the harmony amongst the family of God. Because harmony only comes when a people unite around that which is harmonious, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to believe differently than this is, is, not, is not harmonious, but it's actually deadly. It's actually poison to the church. So being unified in this way is perhaps the, the, the foundational value of the church that unifies people from various races, uh, various uh, religious backgrounds and family backgrounds, different cultures, um, Christ the King is made up of people from all over the country and sometimes all over the world. So we're not, we're not, we don't, we can't unify around being Southern. We wouldn't want to do that anyways. But we are unified and joined together in our common belief in Jesus Christ. That's what unifies us. That is what always should unify us. So the second quality mentioned is sympathy or understanding. So Peter is purposeful here to show that each one of these qualities is not something that he has made up, but they are modeled after Jesus himself. So for sympathy, the author of Hebrews describes Christ as the high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. It doesn't get any better than that. That Jesus himself, uh, God in the flesh, Jesus the Son of God, sympathizes with your weakness whatever that might be. He does this for us in every way. So sympathy amongst us as the body, how we kind of demonstrate that means a readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice, which is oftentimes easy, but it's also a readiness to mourn with those who mourn. So this means that you have to know people in every way so that you know when they are rejoicing and you know when they are mourning. And I would say even, I think sometimes we, we are hesitant uh, at times as Christians to say, hey, I'm excited about this and I am rejoicing in this. And, and, you, and you're afraid to tell people that. Sometimes we like to capitalize on the bad news. We were doing this in our elders meetings for a long time where we would talk about um, what what are the, the problems that we're having at CTK and how do we solve those things? So much so that we, we finally got to the point where we said, we need to have some moments in our elders meetings where we talk about good news. And so we've, we've begun to do that. And that's, that's changed our elder meetings in a lot of ways. To say, look at what God is doing. Let's rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who mourn. So in 1 Corinthians 12 Paul gives us a visual for this by reminding us of the sympathy that exists among your own body parts. So when one member of your body suffers, the other members of your body suffer with it. So when I suffer, when I injure a part of my body, which I've done numerous times, the other members of my body uh, take up the slack for that member that is not working correctly. And sometimes that ends up causing more injury, but, but your body is designed to do that. Ed Clowney says, the, the love that binds the body of Christ together not only seeks the other's good, 
but enters into the other's needs and concerns. So we seek to understand and to know one another. So when people ask you, how are you doing, and you're not doing good, which is typically the the common way we want to answer that because we don't believe that people actually care, is to say, this is a brother or sister, and I know that they want to hear what is going on in my life. I know they want to hear this burden, and I know that they will carry it with me. So we seek to understand and we seek to know one another. It's really important. So the third and fourth quality I combined, but Peter mentions these that are uh, brotherly love and compassion. So brotherly love meaning the, the, the familial love that we have together as the body of Christ and compassion. So like the other qualities, these two are specifically Christian. Specifically Christian. So I'm part of a, of a gym, a jiu-jitsu gym. I do not expect those people in that gym to love me like a brother, to love me like a family member. I do not expect that of them, nor do they expect that of me. This is a uniquely Christian value. And this is important to understand because that means these qualities are not simply just kind of camaraderie around something we all like, like baseball or college or a college football team. This quality points to the reality that we have been born again. And because we are born again, we are children of a heavenly Father, which means we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So this term as well as the next are specifically terms used in reference to kinship obligations. And Peter is doing this, he is writing this way on purpose. He wants the believers to understand who they are uh, amongst each other, that they are brothers and sisters, that they are part of the same family. So by doing this, Peter is suggesting that the Christian community has family obligations to one another that are expected of a biological family. So this doesn't mean a rejection of the biological family. Peter's not saying get rid of the biological family. Uh, He just said to to Christian women who live with non-Christian husbands to stay with your husbands, to be a quiet witness of the gospel to them. So Peter is not saying reject your biological family, but he does mean that the relationship that you have with your local church body, this is why it's important to join a local church, does change some things about your day-to-day life together. So this is how Jesus views it. When told that his family was waiting outside, his mom and his brothers, he says in Matthew 12 to all those gathered, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here is my family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And this applies itself within the church through these two qualities of brotherly love and compassion. That we are to be moving towards one another in the church with love and compassion just as we would move towards those in our biological families with love and compassion. So it's pretty easy to apply. So all you have to do is say, what would I do? How would I love and move towards my family in this sort of love and this sort of compassion? How would I move towards my biological family in this way? And then say, okay, well, this is, that's how God calls me to move towards my spiritual family, to show them this familial love and compassion. The fifth quality, uh, humility, is probably the hardest quality, and I think it's the hardest because our world doesn't reward true humility. To get ahead in life, humility is not necessarily at the top of the list, even though many would probably say it's important in our day and age. But in first century Greek-Roman society, humility was a counterculture value. So in this culture, humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame. Don't be humble. Yet despite how it may look to the world, Peter 
sets humility as one of the defining qualities of the Christian community. And I believe he does this because this is the example that Jesus himself left us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul explains Jesus' example of humility. And, and as, he, as he explains Jesus' example of humility, he also talks about being of the same mind. He also talks about this unity that is found in Jesus and in how Jesus uh, humbled himself before a watching world. So let me read those verses for us. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of, full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, let each of you not only look, uh, look to the interests of his, his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he's going to explain. This is where I'm getting this from. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Humility. Counter-cultural value. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus does this uh, counter-cultural move in humility, but at the end of days, Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to this humble servant of God, Jesus Christ. But to live humbly in the first century and to live humbly now is still to run counter to the trends of the culture. But Peter is saying to his readers that the attitude we take, that the attitude that we take on is not of the world, but it's that of Christ. And these virtues, because they are first modeled to us by Jesus, are the virtues that will sustain us. They are the virtues that will sustain the church, the Christian community. And now in our second point, we'll look at values that that, that don't just sustain us, but mark us, that define us as a community. So in verse 9, Peter is now turning his attention back to the reason this letter was written, which is uh, the relationship of his readers with, with people who are hostile to them that are outside of the church community. So in our world, the view on Christianity has, has changed over time. I can remember a day... Uh, once upon a time, when Christianity was was tolerated in our country. Christians uh, once were seen as, as innocent and even uh, irrelevant. They were not much of a threat. So they were tolerated at best or just simply ignored. But nowadays, in certain parts of the country, even in the South, Christianity is, is more hated than tolerated or ignored. Christianity is, is looked on now with suspicion, much like uh, the, the, the people that Peter is, uh, is writing to uh, in his day. Christians are seen as, as part of the problem with our country and not part of the solution. So how do you live out the gospel in a world that is suspicious of Christianity and Christians and can even be hostile toward them? How do you do that? The answer is verse 9. Look there with me. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, so people throwing insults at you, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So on first reading there, honestly, I can say that sounds weak. 
that doesn't sound like strong words. You're like, that's it, Peter? So we're just the kind of, we're just in, we're just supposed to take it? We're just supposed to be the doormats of our society? Um, that's not how I live my life with anyone. If someone wrongs me, I will wrong them back. If someone cuts me off in traffic, I will cut them. I will go, I will try to speed up to them. This is a hypothetical. I will try to speed up to them and I will cut them off in traffic. Or at least say a few choice words under my breath. Why? Well, because they deserve it. They have wronged me. And so they deserve to be wronged back. But this isn't how the gospel calls us to live, is it? And this goes way beyond cutting someone off in traffic. Because Peter has in mind the reality of Christians being treated in an evil manner and, and, and even being criticized because of what they believe uh, simply because of their faith in Jesus. So this would have involved insults. This would have involved defamation of character and verbal abuse. And later, as Peter knows, because he's been told by Jesus himself, physical abuse and even death is coming for the church. So this, this would have given and still will give the unbeliever pause when we choose not to reality, retaliate and not to trade insults for insults, but instead... Offer blessing. So Peter was more than likely referring to Jesus' words from Luke 6 here that says, Jesus saying, But I say to you, but I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. So what does it mean to bless? It's a word that's I think's been abused in our in our in our culture, and so we don't really have a great definition of it. I, I think if we were to ask that question, but in Greek culture, uh, the word here for bless meant publicly speaking well of someone, which is good, and, and which I think is a, is a form of blessing to someone to speak publicly speak well of them to affirm people publicly. I'll do that on occasion here to affirm people publicly is a good thing. That is a blessing. But the Jewish and Christian use of the word goes a bit further. It meant to invoke God's favor on someone. Not just to say, man, what a great job you did on that particular project. Let's all give them a round of applause for that. But they would invoke God's favor on someone. They would invoke the Lord's blessing on that particular person. So admittedly, this is not my first thought or response when someone mistreats me. So to have self-control in a moment like this, when someone is mistreating me or hurling insults at me or trying to start an argument with me, this is truly a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us when we can show self-control in moments like this. Because it's in these moments when we are insulted and treated wrongly, it's in those moments where we feel the most justified in responding in kind. Well, they did it to me. And typically a way in which we try to respond in kind is with gossip or exaggerating the extent of the fault that the person has committed towards you and say, man, can you believe this is what they did? It was crazy or trying to pull others to your side against this particular person, or just with outright slander, spreading rumors. And Peter, Peter here is, is not saying just to grin and bear it and kind of roll your eyes and move on. Peter is saying that we need to, have, uh, we need to be conscious of what is happening in that moment of being cursed. We need to be conscious of what they are doing to us, because Jesus said that would happen, and then we need to be conscious of how we are going to respond. That might just be walking away, but it might be the moment where you have to bless that person, to invoke God's blessing upon them. So Peter is saying to maintain an inner attitude that allows, that allows you not only to pray for that individual, 
but to do them good as well. So I read a story about a Christian soldier who was living in the barracks with his unit, um, and each night he would read his Bible and he would pray. And as he was doing that, the this, this soldier that was across the aisle from him uh, would ridicule him and make fun of him. And why are you doing that? That's stupid and ir- irrelevant. It's no help to you or anybody else. Kept doing it. So one night, a pair of muddy boots came flying at this Christian soldier. So the next morning, the hostile soldier, soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. And as a result of, of the inner strength of this man's uh, fortitude and patience in the moment to, to consciously uh, understand what it is that God has called him to in Christ and that he would suffer because Christ has suffered, because of his inner strength, several of, the, of his soldiers in that unit came to know Christ. So how can you do this in the places that you frequent? I mean, a lot of you, you know, you work full-time jobs and you are at your job more than you are at home at times. And let me just say, that is the place, whatever job it might be, that is the place that God has called you to at this particular moment in your life. And so you need to submit yourself to that calling. Because God has a plan for you there. He didn't just put you there just to kind of yawn and just kind of get through it each day and to suffer through it. He has put you there for a purpose. So the first thing that you probably should ask yourself is, do the people I work with or associate with most, do they even know I'm a Christian? Am I living the gospel before them? Or am I just kind of running alongside of them and doing whatever it is that they are doing so that I just remain comfortable and nobody says anything to me? The second step would then, would then be to, to ask yourself, how do I engage these people with the gospel? How do I do that at SRS? How do I do that uh, at Fort Gordon? How do I do that um, at the school that I'm a teacher at? How do I do that uh, wherever it is that God is in, in the gym that I frequent or, or, uh, or wherever it might be? How do I engage people with the gospel? It may be like this young soldier who just had his Bible open and prayed. Uh, It may be standing up for what is right and calling out sin or wrongdoing in your workplace that that you know is wrong. It may be answering a question uh, or the questions of a non-Christian co-worker or fellow student or friend that you've gotten to know and showing patience with them even when they are completely against the gospel. And probably the most important um, task that you you could implement is to pray like Paul prayed often for open doors to the gospel. And I can tell you that every time I've done that, God has given me open doors to the gospel. Now, it does not always look like I'm sharing the full gospel message with somebody and then they bow the knee and pray to receive Christ right then and there. It's usually not the way it happens. It's usually a slow chipping away with the truth. Sometimes that might happen. So praying for those open doors and then looking for them throughout your day. If anything, if if you're at a job that you hate, it'll make your day more exciting. It'll help you get through it a little bit more when you understand that that's where God has called you. So cast your net wide. Don't get hung up on the systems and structures of evangelism trainings that say this is how you share the gospel. Jesus says to simply live out the gospel where God has placed you and trust that the Spirit will do His work in you and through you. I can guarantee that. So Peter then goes on to say that this is not an option for the Christian, but it's actually how God has called you to live. And we live this way, which is, uh, uh, you know, returning the curses that might be said to us or behind our backs. We live this way and, uh, um, with, you know, returning those with blessing instead of more curses because we have been called, called to this. And we do that because we, because Peter says, 
so that we might receive a blessing as well. So in other words, Peter, just as he has done throughout his letter, appeals to what the Lord has done for us to encourage us to live for him. So Peter is is anchoring his readers back into the gospel and saying, here is what Jesus has done. And because Jesus has done this for you, this is how you are now to live. And it's the common theme throughout the Bible that we don't do good works to earn salvation. We do good works even to those who revile us and hate us because salvation has been given to us. And Peter backs these words up by quoting from the Bible, from Psalm 34 that we had read for us earlier. And he only quotes a couple of verses there in verses 10 through 12, which, which seems to be one of Peter's favorite psalms. So if you're reading along in 1 Peter as we're doing this study, you'll notice that he alludes to, to, to this psalm throughout his letter. He is constantly going back to Psalm 34 because it's a psalm that reminds its readers of the view that God has of them, of the view that God has of the Christian community, of his people, of the church. Look at verses 10 through 12. Peter quoting from Psalm 34, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in these verses from Psalm 34, which uh, some think were used to instruct new Christians, they would take them to Psalm 34 to to give them early discipleship. Uh, But here in Psalm 34, Peter is reorienting his readers' minds around suffering, And he does this by saying we need to look at these things through the eyes of the Lord. You need to understand how God sees you as believers. Because most would look at this way of life that we are called to as Christians and say, why do you live that way? Why do you you sacrifice your time? Why do you sacrifice your money? Why do you sacrifice, you know, the things that you own? Why do you, why do you live this way? It seems hard. Why not live in a way that's easier so that you can avoid unnecessary hardships? So that you can avoid sufferings and, and still be happy and comfortable. And most importantly, people will like you. Why are you living this way? But the true Christian has a different perspective because he knows or she knows who watches over them now and who will watch over them into eternity. Verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit or speaking lies. So this means that both our life now and the life to come, so our entire existence, Peter says, is blessed by God if we seek to live in such a way that brings God glory. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So Paul describes it this way in his own life to the Corinthian church in his second letter. He says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning these these broken, kind of unreliable jars, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So Paul reframes his own suffering 
in light of the gospel. He uses the phrase, so that, uh, three times to show the reason they live this way is not in anything of themselves. It's not because we are good people, but for the sole purpose of making Jesus known to, to those that he ministers to. So Paul says, I suffer for your sake. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, I die daily for your sake, so that, not so that you can look at me and think, wow, he is amazing. Paul says, so that you can experience life in Christ. And this is what Peter says we are called to do as well. That we are living this way toward each other in the church. That we, are to, that we too are to, to die daily so that our brother and sisters uh, might experience the life of Christ. So this means that we, that we not only return curses with blessings and doing good toward those outside the church, which is typically what we, what we run to first, but primarily what Peter is talking about here, primarily we are doing this within the church. Because sadly, the church is known more for its backbiting and attacking and eating of its own more than it is for anybody outside of the church. Every abuse story that you hear come out, and it seems like it's weekly right now, out of churches and Christian organizations is proof of this. That sometimes there are people in our midst Uh, Paul calls them wolves, who are here to prey upon the sheep. And this should not be true amongst us, particularly here at CTK. Verse 12 reminds us, this is why it shouldn't be true. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. I know we have a, a, a joke with, with um, my deaf friend Chase over here. We'll do this, which means God is looking down on you, which, yeah, and it seems crazy, but, um, but it is. It's a reminder that, that the eyes of the Lord are upon us. The eyes of the Lord are, are looking at us. He cares for us. He's concerned for our well-being. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God God looks at the righteous in this way, in a loving, uh, caring, compassionate way, but the face of the Lord to the evil, evil is terrible. And yes, that is evil that comes to us by way of the world outside. That will happen but it also refers to the evil that sadly is perpetrated by those inside the church as well. So when things that have the potential of dividing us arise, and they will come, they have come to this church, and more will come, our role is to put a stop to the vicious cycle of evil that could be generated from that which could divide us. And the way we stop it is by inserting the gospel. So I read in an article this week in Christianity Today that quotes two social psychologists. Um, one is Jonathan Haidt. Some of you might know who he is. Um, and another is, is, is Dr. Uh, Keltner. And, and they say one of the main facts, and, and I, as far as I know, neither one of them are, are Christians, as far as I know. Um, but, but they say one of the main factors in keeping people away from tribalism, so getting caught up in a political party or, or, or an ideology, and, and that's what you kind of unify around. So, so one of the main factors from, to avoiding that sort of behavior is all. A-W-E is all. It, it's, it's getting caught up in that which overwhelms us, and makes us feel small, and in turn, changes us. So this is what Jonathan Haidt says. He says, One can see in these moments of awe, 
that life is about more than just the seen and the material. This encounter with transcendence can cause people to be kinder, calmer, and less anxious. Almost, one might say, born again. So instead of gossip, instead of exaggerating the extent of someone's faults, instead of slander of a brother or sister, instead of just grinning and bearing it with somebody, we are to walk towards them together in the awe of the glory of God. That's what, that what, that's what makes us feel small. That's what kind of helps us to understand that the material and the physical are not necessarily that important. And that's what unites us. So when your brother or sister suffers, you suffer right alongside them, as if it is happening to you. So you may weep with them. You may sit with them as they weep. And then when they are rejoicing, we rejoice as well, as if it is happening to us. So if God gives them whatever it is that that they've been praying for, um, even if you're like, man, I really wish I could have that, you rejoice with them as if it is happening to you. That is the way God calls us to live. And can you imagine, can you imagine the type of community this would be if we laid down our lives in this way? That when we saw a need, we would immediately meet it. Whatever, if it's food or someone needs money or a car or whatever it might be, that we would immediately meet it. The light of Christ, and I can tell you, if we continue to live in this way as a church, the light of Christ will be so bright that those who look in our direction would be blinded by its beauty. They would be in awe, even if they don't understand why they're in awe, of the glory of God. That they too would be overwhelmed with the vastness that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, changing his people. Amen. Let's pray.